Well, it's my privilege to open the Bible to you this morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. Matthew, chapter 3. The title of my message is Baptisms, because we're looking at a couple of different baptisms, a couple of different kinds of baptisms. And with that in mind, I did want to mention that this coming Lord's Day, not tonight, but next week, we will not only have our two service offerings, 8.30 and 10.30, but also we will have Worship in the Round. Worship in the Round is at 5 p.m. this coming Lord's Day. It's a good opportunity for everybody to come together and, you know, people from both services to gather, but we're gathering not just for the Word of God, which they'll be preaching. We're also gathering to observe baptisms, and there are two candidates for baptism that we will baptize baptize that evening. With that in mind, uh, I just want to point out that chapter 3 of Matthew is about baptism. It's about baptism. There are eight variations of the word baptism out of these 17 verses before us. Eight references to words that are from the root word baptize. We have John the Baptist. That's a title for him. That's verse one. And then in verse six, it says, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. That's the masses. That's the mass of people that were protesting against the religious center of Jerusalem. People coming from all over in protest to external religion. They were repenting and being baptized. Verse seven, his baptism. This is John's baptism of repentance that was not for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you couldn't fake your way into John's baptism. You had to truly be a repenter. The Pharisees and Sadducees were not. Verse 11 has a couple references. You have in verse 11, John saying, I baptize with water. That's the baptism of repentance in contrast to Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You have a contrast there, but two more references to baptism. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus coming to be baptized. Then verse 14, you have John's argument for his unworthiness to baptize Jesus says, I need to be baptized, not you. You need to baptize me. Verse 16, Jesus obeyed and was baptized. So you have all of these references to baptism. And so that should catch our attention. If you're studying the Bible, you seminary students that are in the room even today, uh, when you have a key word that's repeated over and over and over again, you're, you're supposed to pay attention to that. And you're supposed to see a theme arise baptism. Let me ask a question. Have you been baptized? Now, what enters your mind when I ask that question? Are you suddenly going, well, I, you know, I know I needed to do it and I believe I'm saved and I need to obey and be baptized. Is that how you're applying my question? Well, this text takes you a level deeper because there are two baptisms in front of us. 
There is the baptism of repentance, which is being baptized or immersed in water, but because of a changed heart where you've repented. And then there is the changed heart baptism, the baptism of Jesus, what he can only do, where you are baptized by the Holy Spirit in fire. So have you been baptized? Have you experienced the baptism of conversion and the baptism of repentance? John's baptism is external in terms of physically immersing someone. It's physical, it's symbolic, it's temporal. It was done in time and space. It's a baptism of repentance. Picking up on the beginning of verse 11, that's the baptism of repentance. It's based on a transformed heart, but that in the physical baptism is dramatically different to what Jesus is doing where he transforms the heart. This is Jesus' baptism, which is internal, spiritual, transformational, and eternal. It's the baptism of conversion. Let me ask this question before we dig more deeply into verses 11 and 12. Verses 13 through 17, which will open up next week, begs a question. If we're talking about a baptism of repentance, and that being John's baptism, why did Jesus undergo the baptism of repentance? Why did the impeccable Christ, the sinless Christ, yield himself to John's baptism? That should be sort of grinding in your mind a little bit. What was he doing as the impeccable son of God? Well, you have to remember that Jesus came to model righteousness for us. And that his righteousness was not based only on what he did not do, where he never sinned. I would make the case he could not have sinned, but it wasn't just based on what he did not do, but it was also based on a righteousness for what he did do, what he accomplished on our behalf. He, as verse 15 speaks of, he fulfilled all righteousness. He's the perfect model and example for us as someone who never sinned, who never needed to repent of any sins because he never sinned, but someone who perfectly obeyed the law of God Fulfilling all righteousness, the difference between Christ's passive obedience and his active obedience are on display here, is on display here. He underwent real temptations that he never succumbed to, temptations that came outwardly, not inwardly. He is the picture to us of someone who constantly put off, he put off the external temptations and always put on perfect obedience. See, he models that for us. With this, with this model in mind, the Savior's baptism is an example for us as we need to think through our sinner's baptism. The Savior's baptism, we'll talk about that next time, but this week is the sinner's baptism. It's a baptism of repentance. And a baptism that only Christ can perform, which is the baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire. It's amazing to think about these realities 
These are really what's going on behind the scenes for someone who's coming forward for physical baptism, like, like these two will come next weekend. Something has needed to happen inside the heart before they could be physically baptized. So with that in the background of your mind, let me ask the question again. Do you need to be baptized? Baptized in the heart. Do you need that? Do you still need to be converted? Have you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Well, these two baptisms, John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, they represent two outcomes. What do I mean by that? You have two baptisms and two outcomes. If you receive the Lord Jesus, you'll have one outcome. If you reject the Lord Jesus and his baptism in your heart, then you'll have another outcome. And that's where this text is going. It's drawing a very dramatic line between those who will come under God's fiery wrath judgment and those who are truly born again and set free for eternity. So the question of have you been baptized is one where the stakes are dramatically higher. Have you been baptized in your heart by the Lord? Because if you have or you have not, will determine a very dramatic and eternal outcome that you need to contend with in your own mind. Has Jesus Christ performed heart surgery in you yet or not? Those who come for physical baptism, those who are immersed in physical water, testify of this transformation that has already taken place in the heart. Well, let's look at this together. I want to look at verse 11. First at John's baptism. John's baptism. John's baptism comes as a backdrop, comes with the backdrop of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We've talked about them from verse 7. They were unrepentant. And because John knew that they were unrepentant, he immediately began to define what repentance looks like in terms of fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If your heart's changed, you're going to show the fruit of that. Everything comes down to fruit in John's mind. Repentance is not observing a religious rite. It's not going undergoing baptism. That's not repentance. You don't do something external to make yourself right with God ever. Repentance, secondly, is observable. It's namely called fruit. That's verse 8. Bear fruit. Show it. And you will if you are truly transformed. Thirdly, repentance is never based on ethnic privilege. If you look at verse 9, they were saying we have our father Abraham. John was speaking for them. He knew what they were relying on. They were relying on their ethnic privilege. It would be like you relying on being from a particular denomination or having parents who are saved or some kind of external idea that you believe makes you safe with God when you're truly not safe. Repentance also is taking God's warnings seriously. Even in Verse 9, when they were being exposed for relying on ethnic privilege, 
John says, look, he could raise stones up to be the children of Abraham. Even more severe than that, verse 10, there's an ax that's laid at the root of the trees. If you're not someone that's bearing fruit, if you're not showing your, your fruit of repentance, then judgment is coming. There is an ax that is going to cut you down at the root. So this is, these are the backdrop statements to verses 11 and 12. John's exposing spiritual deafness. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says in verse 7. An axe is going to cut you down, verse 10. And that brings us to verses 11 and 12. It's as if John is closing the argument with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's made his point and now he fixes his gaze on everybody else and says, you don't want to be them. And let me just clarify a few things in terms of baptism. Now, John's severity and strength of message should not just be understood as a proverbial beat down. He's not just warning to depress the crowds. He's actually warning everyone before him in view of grace, in view of grace. God is not willing that any should perish. God finds no pleasure in the death of ungodly sinners. God wants all to come to Christ, all to enter in, all to undergo the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. This is John's message and his desire. Verse 11 should be the turning point from the warning of judgment to grace. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is a message that's strong in view of the warnings, but it is rich with grace. This is dripping with grace. There was a massive movement of people who were coming in view of grace. Verse 5, they were coming to the baptism of John because they were repenting. This was in light of baptizing people into the Jewish covenant community. It was called the proselyte baptism of the Gentiles where they would join the chosen people of God through a baptism. And John was picking up on that as coming in the spirit of Elijah, the one who was fulfilling the promise that Elijah would come back and he is the last final prophet was baptizing the masses who were coming. John's quick to divest himself of credit, though. He wants to draw a dramatic contrast between what he is doing functionally and what Christ can only do in the heart. This is John. John is powerful. He's demonstrative. He's dressed in camel's hair. He's got the leather belt. He's coming as the fulfillment of Elijah. He is coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's bringing a spirit-empowered, spirit-inspired message. And mobs of people are coming out to hear him and to see what is going on. And in the midst of this, instead of him saying, all eyes on me, all eyes on the message, he is saying, I am the forerunner. This is not about me. What I'm doing functionally is in light of what Christ can only do practically and powerfully in the heart. 
The word baptism is um, immersion. It's symbolic of the transformed heart. It's a functional picture of a full life being immersed in their repentance, in their understanding of their sin, and in the new life that they are now going to live in view of Christ who has come. It's a very mature life decision. I do believe children can be baptized. We just observed a young teenager who was baptized at Wasilla Lake. It was a beautiful expression of faith. And though children can be baptized, let me just emphasize that this is a whole life, very mature decision. I've always put it this way. Children can be baptized, but it's a child who by faith is making a very adult decision. It's a very serious decision. Baptism is not something where we're just trying to catch Catch a profession up and seal it up before it goes away. It's what parents, I think, sometimes are tempted to believe. Oh, you know, my little child is professing and I don't want it to escape. And so I'm going to seal it with an external rite. That is not baptism. Baptism is a confession and a profession and a symbolic expression of what God has done on the inside that's expressed on the outside before the community of faith for accountability And for testimony of gospel transformation. This is what John's baptism was. I baptize you with water for repentance. It's really in the name of repentance is how that should be understood. It symbolizes repentance. But John is saying this in contrast to what Jesus can do. There's a real disparity between what John can do practically and what Jesus can only do in the heart. John's baptism did represent something very strong, though. And I, before I create the contrast between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, which is very important to do because this is what the text is doing. But before we do that, I want to be clear to show the overlapping nature between both baptisms in this sense. John's baptism did truly represent saved converts, truly converted people. I think sometimes we think of John's message as a partial half-measured message, not a full message for full repentance and full transformed people that are in grace on the way to glory. It's almost like you, you are baptized under the message of John and under repentance, but you need kind of a 2.0 conversion to follow to really get it all and go to heaven. That's not true at all. It's not true at all. And you see this in John 3. I'm just going to ask you to turn there or look, look there. John 3.22, you have the comparison of uh, dueling baptisms that were going on. You have John over here and he's baptizing. And then you have Jesus over here and he's baptizing. So which is it? Which is better? What's going on? Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing. So you have both baptizing at Anon and Salim, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, which means immersion, right? You need a lot of water. And people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. His ministry was still going. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Almost like trying to pit John's ministry against Jesus' ministry. John's saying, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. I'm just ministering the gospel of repentance. Look what he says. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Conversion is from heaven. John's baptism is like John himself. It's a forerunner to Christ. It's a catalyst to Christ. John always wanted to point to Christ. John chapter 1 is interesting because it gives some context for how much John really knew Jesus. We know that they were cousins, but they were really distant cousins. If you look at John 1, 19, this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not him. What then, are you Elijah? They asked him. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. It, it even goes down and just kind of begs, what are you? What are you about? And John is clear to say, I am not Jesus. So was John's baptism and his message ineffective? Well, if you read farther in the book of Acts, further in the book of Acts, Acts 19, 18 and 19, you have Apollos, Apollos who was eloquent and competent in the scriptures, verse 24, he was a native of Alexandria, he was a preacher, verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He only knew about John's baptism. And then verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos had to be informed of who Jesus was more accurately. Disciples of John followed, Acts 19, 1 to 5. You have Paul who um, found them. As while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. Who were they? These were the disciples of John. Verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism, baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So were John's disciples not saved or converted before they were more informed? No, they were saved, they were converted, they were on their way to heaven, but they needed to have a progress of revelation. It's called progressive revelation. They needed to be fully informed of the gospel. Let me ask this question. How much of the gospel did you know when you were first converted? When you were transformed? Did you know everything that you know now? Could you say if you were put on the, you know, I don't know, under the lights on the table and someone was to say, you know, what, what, tell me and describe how Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. Or when Jesus died on the cross, did he genuinely die 
Because he's God and can God die? I mean, some of these questions, right? Explain to me the impeccability of Christ. Christ genuinely obeyed everything to fulfill all righteousness, but never could have sinned in the first place because he's perfectly God. Well, some of these things are inscrutable, right? I mean, these are very difficult things to understand. Explain to me the sovereignty of God, how God is in control of all things, and yet we have human responsibility to follow his word. These are hard things to tie together. Why do we evangelize if God is completely sovereign over who's going to be saved or not? These are difficult things, but these are answer. These are questions that you don't have to have resolved to enter into the kingdom. You have to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I'm saved because I need a Savior. I know I'm a sinner. He's my sacrifice for my sin. He died. He was buried. He rose again. I'm following Jesus. I want Jesus enter into my life. That's the foundation. That's the door to know Jesus Christ. And these disciples of John were following a baptism of John, but they ultimately found out about who Jesus was completely. Even John the Baptist in Matthew 11, we'll explore that when we get there, he had doubts while he was in prison. He had doubts about Jesus Christ. He was discouraged. He said in 11, Matthew eleven three, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus affirmed him even in his doubts, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So my point is to affirm John's message of repentance. It's an important one. His baptism was important. But I also want to affirm John's humility to say that he was not Christ. He was not the transformer. He was the proclaimer. He was the one who was saying he must increase and I must decrease. Again, John didn't even really know Jesus personally at all. John 1, 19 and 20, when they the priests and Levites were asking, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And, and then if you look at verse 25 of that same um, section, they were asking him, then why are you baptizing if you neither are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Why are you doing that? And he is saying, You know, I'm not even worthy to be part of this ministry and mission. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, you see this humility um, in the phrase that follows what he says. He says, John, John, he said of his baptism, it's a water for repentance. But look, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, mightier than I. John 1, 31, he said, I myself did not even know him. He didn't even know him, but he did know that he was mightier. He didn't grow up knowing Jesus. He didn't know him, but he did know that he was mightier. How much mightier did he believe Jesus was in him? Incomprehensibly mightier. 
back to Matthew 3, 11. How mighty, he says, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That's how much mightier he believed he was than him. Incomprehensibly mightier. The word mighty is powerful. Jesus can do something that I cannot do. Jesus can change the heart. Jesus is in charge of people's eternity. Jesus is in charge of people's destiny. Jesus will bring wrath and unquenchable fire judgment that's irreversible one day. He is God. He does things that I cannot do, and I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. The idea here is, and some scholars say that that was sort of a made-up phrase just to try to capture what John was saying, but really servants in those days would come and wash people's feet. Do you remember the scene in the upper room where Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Well, the reason that is a kind of a gross, um, sort of earthy form of service is that people were walking around as pedestrians, and oftentimes they would walk in dirt and mud and manure. And so to untie someone's sandal or unstrap it and then wash it is to wash fecal matter off of someone's feet. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy enough to begin that process. I'm not worthy to even unstrap the sandal. John 1, 19 and 20. Or John 1, 27 rather, he says... He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I can't even start the process here. Can't even wipe them down. So that's John's disposition. This is the baptism of repentance. Let's look at the baptism now of Jesus. Jesus' baptism. The baptism of conversion. This is what he does in the heart. Verse 11, I baptize you with water. And then you skip down, skip down. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let me ask this question. Were Old Testament saints transformed by the Holy Spirit? Have you ever asked that question? Or did that come later? We know that in John 14 and John 16, there was the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We know that at Acts 2, there was Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came in a demonstrative way. Are people from the Old Testament dispensation, are they transformed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit? And I believe the answer is that throughout Scripture, we see this truth of transformation on the heart level throughout. And This is what is being spoken of here in Matthew 3. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is being spoken of here? Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that was predicted. This is the the prophecy that was going to be fulfilled in the church. But I believe it was alive and well in under the old covenant because people were being saved genuinely back then. Verse 33, it says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
I believe David as a king was transformed and loved the law of the Lord. I believe he was the author of Psalm 119 and that love and affection for the law, that love and affection for Christ is from the Holy Spirit's transforming work. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new heart I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There was application then and application to the future in terms of what God only can do by transforming the heart. Why do I believe that this was live and dynamic even in the Old Testament saint's heart? Well, when Jesus was witnessing to Nicodemus, what did he say to him? You must be born again. That's what was predicted from Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. That's what Jesus was saying needed to happen in the heart of Nicodemus for him to understand truth, for the lights to be turned on, for him to engage the spiritual realm and for it to be meaningful to him. That's all of the heroes of the faith of Hebrews 11. They were transformed from the inside out. That's why they were giving their lives to a kingdom that was not even fully realized or fully revealed at that point. Second Corinthians five seventeen in the New Testament. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old has passed away and behold, new has come. Titus 3, 5 and 6 When you're saved, you are washed by regeneration and renewed by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The issue isn't whether the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. The issue wasn't whether people who have been saved throughout the history of time, whether they were saved by the Holy Spirit or not. It's just we have more revelation. We have more optics. We have a full canon of scripture for us to understand what is truly going on inside the heart. Those under the baptism of John, they were being born again. That's why they underwent that baptism of repentance. But someone would only go into that baptism of repentance and be immersed if Jesus Christ behind the scenes had baptized their hearts by the Holy Spirit and by fire. Those two things go together. Let me ask this question if you haven't already been asking it. Is is fire a good thing? To be baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, a lot of people will interpret fire in view of the references to fire judgment that John has spoken of already. Verse 10, uh, the tree that does not bear good fruit. It's thrown down. It's, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. And then you have verse 12 is referencing an unquenchable fire. Those are obvious references to judgment and eternal fire. But this fire, I think, is actually the opposite. This is, I believe, the purifying refiner's fire of the Lord Jesus in the life of a new believer. When you become a believer, you are made pure by God immediately. You say, well, but I still sin when I live my life in this world as a believer. I'm born again. I know when I do wrong, but I still do wrong. Well, do you realize that God has 
burned all of your sins away at your conversion. You might still sin, but he's not going to judge you for those sins. Where am I building this from? Well, look at, if you look at Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, Malachi 3, this is a prophecy regarding John the Baptist. It's regarding Jesus and John. It's fitting being the last book of the Old Testament in our canon, and it's before the 400 years of the intertestamental dark ages, before Christ comes, and then you have Matthew, the first New Testament book in our canon. Matthew 3, I mean, Malachi 3, 1 to 3, behold, I send my messenger. This is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Now listen to how this is applied He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Admittedly, there is judgment in the Lord's return. Malachi chapter 4 speaks of burning that will come in the day of judgment. The day of judgment will be like an oven. But for those who are saved, you will be saved and fit to offer righteous offerings to the Lord because of the Lord's purifying fire in your life. You're saved. When you're saved, all of what you've done Against him is burned away. That's the imagery here. It's the imagery of the refiner's fire. It may be an allusion to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where things that we do not do in this world that give glory to God are burned away as wood, hay, and stubble. We're baptized into Holy Spirit and fire. Well, these two baptisms, the baptism of John and external immersion based on repentance is truly based on Christ's baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life, his transforming work. And all of this points to verse 12, which is God's grace. Look at verse 12. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You say, how is this judgment scene grace? It's grace because you get to hear the warning before it's too late. That's grace. Grace is the gospel of the line in the sand where you are either going to be wheat or chaff, saved or unsaved. You're in the light or you're in the darkness. You're either a sheep or you are a goat either a believer or an unbeliever. And we want to be on the side of the Lord. Judgment is irreversible. It's terrifying. It's imminent. At the same time, we need to be warmed by the fact that God gives us the grace to hear it on this side of eternity. Especially children who hear warnings like this. These kinds of warnings are significant to us. They are grace to you, children. It's grace for you to go, I want to follow the Lord with my whole life. It's grace to you who uh, perhaps have 
not followed the Lord your whole life, but you're looking at your life and you're going, I'm warned by this and I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to unquenchable fire. I want grace. I want Christ. One day as you stand before the Lord, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not worship you and stand for you and follow you? But if you don't truly know him, if you don't truly hear this warning, if you don't truly heed this warning, then the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You don't want to be in that situation. A warning like this, though it's sobering, though it's heavy, though it's something you don't want to hear and you kind of want to just ignore, you need to embrace a warning like this and embrace it as God's grace in your life. As as a believing, professing Christian, you want to be warned by eternal judgment to say, I never want to look like a goat. I never want to look like an unbeliever. I don't want to walk a path of sin and flesh and darkness. I don't ever want to deny the faith. I've known seminarians, people who've studied for ministry. We've known pastors. We've known friends who who look like they were in Christ. They look like they were doing just fine, but they gave themselves over to the flesh and walked away from the Lord. They didn't heed a warning of grace like this one. This is grace. How do you stay out of sin? How do you keep your eyes from looking at the wrong things? How do you follow the Lord in holy marriage all of your life? You're warned by a text like this one. This is grace. It's verse 12. A farmer's tool. The winnowing fork is on display. What's a winnowing fork? Well, it's basically a rake. I've never used one, but it's a rake. It's got a, it's got a hand. And what farmers would do in agricultural times is they would carve out a depression in the side of a hillside and they would pack the dirt down really, really hard, almost like concrete. And then they would, would take the, the harvested wheat that would, and they would lay it Um, down on the floor and then they would take their ox and oxen and and they would attach big ropes and boards or heavy lumber to the back of the oxen and the oxen would tread over the wheat and and crush the husks and the and the chaff and the wheat they would crush all that to kind of this material at the bottom of this depressed area and then the farmer would come on a windy day with his winnowing fork and scoop it in and throw it up in the air and the chaff or the husks would blow away outside of this threshing floor and the wheat would fall to the ground now what i love in this picture is the humility of god to and this is through john the baptist preaching and description but it's the humility of god for him to be compared to a farmer who very intimately is down on the ground, says, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. That's grace. He gathers his beloved children. He gathers his sheep. He gathers the wheat. He knows you personally. He's transformed your heart by the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's purified you to be a worshiper of God through his refining fire. And he's brought you to himself and he's gathered you into his place, into his barn. He's harvested you. You're the first fruits of believers. You're, you're the true believers, those who are his beloved What's equally personal, though, is in verse 11. 
I'm verse 12, where it says, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The husks that are blown outside of the Lord's area, his threshing floor, those are also raked up. They're not left out. They're not just annihilated. They're not just people who go without Christ into eternity. Do not just go into oblivion. Life does not just stop. Your mind doesn't just shut off. You're actually fit and fitted and equipped with a eternal body, but a body for judgment to undergo eternal damnation, unquenchable fire is what is depicted here. It's if you've ever been burned, you know that a burn on a cellular level doesn't stay superficial, it goes deep. And you're immediately trying to ice the burn or put it under cold water because you don't want not only burning to happen on the outside, but the burning to eat away at your flesh on the inside. And that's the picture of what's going on for all of eternity. The internal flesh burn. The picture of Gehenna that is um, spoken of in Matthew chapter 5, which was... 522, the garbage dump of Jerusalem that burned continuously. This is a picture of hell. It's what the rich man cried out in Luke 20, uh, 16, 24 to Lazarus. Just will you dip the end of your finger in water and cool my tongue? Can I have some kind of relief with this hellish existence? What are you headed for? Have you been baptized? Do you, here's the question, do you need to be baptized? Sounds like a superficial question. Do you need to be baptized and put dunked in water? Well, the question is, have you been baptized on the inside first? So that you now want to be baptized on the outside afterwards. Right? Have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire? Because If the Lord has baptized you, then you are safe, you are secure, you're fit for heaven. If you have not been baptized internally by the Lord, transformed on the inside out, you're not secure, you're insecure, you're unsafe, and you are going towards an unquenchable fire. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Baptism, which corresponds, corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. The baptism that saves you is not when you are dunked externally. It's when God works inside you internally and for eternity. Has that happened for you? I hope it has. This is the warning. Next week, Jesus' example is that he goes and is baptized. We need to follow the Lord Jesus in baptism, but follow through faith and repentance, and then the obedience to say, Jesus is Lord.